The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, today is our third question and answer session with Gil answering questions from the IMC online community. So welcome, Gil. Mm -hmm. And let us start with a question from uh, Steve in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And uh, he wants to know, especially early on, I picked up little practices from Buddhist traditions other than Vipassana, such as uh, meditating on various images. Uh, what are your thoughts on integrating or experimenting with such practices? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's a question that's relevant for many people who have been introduced to different practices, know different practices, and, and how do these different practices work together? Um, some some uh, practices are complementary. They address different areas of our life than mindfulness would, and so it's helpful to develop those things. So, for example, loving-kindness meditation is a complementary practice that's very helpful, that uh, develops more sense of friendliness and open-heartedness that supports the mindfulness. And it's good to do both. Uh, some people like to do a concentration practice uh, that supports the mindfulness practice, helps them get more concentrated and settled. That helps. Uh, sometimes there are thematic issues that people need to address in their life, or it's good to address. And so there are more thematic uh, practices. So, for example, the contemplation of death and dying. It's a very powerful practice. And, uh, and so some people find it very useful to spend some time with that practice. Um, the, uh, the, um, there's a few things about mixing practices. One is, um, in any given meditation session, you want to be very cautious about mixing. Uh, you want to be clear, really clear, if you're doing uh, mindfulness or vipassana, you want to be really clear you understand what vipassana is and, um, and what the purpose is, so that uh, you're not uh, uh, bringing in other things to, that, that uh, interfere with the direction that vipassana is going. So, for example, if your vipassana practice has a lot to do with uh, learning how to be really present with the way things are, then you want to be careful about, uh, during your vipassana session, bringing in other practices that uh, are there to change how you are. And it's very common for people to want to feel better. And so, as soon as they feel a bit lousy, they switch to something which makes them feel better, rather than turning towards what's really going on for them and being present for it in a very direct way and working through it with the vipassana. So, uh, you know, some people, every time they get uncomfortable, will find another practice to do, and they never really face themselves in a deep way. Um, also, there can be confusion about... Uh, um, um, there can be about, again, the purpose of, of uh, the practice, where uh, people can focus so much on attainment and getting someplace, getting calm, getting concentrated, having some kind of uh, blissful experience. And so if they're not having that experience, then they'll latch on to some other practice which is more likely to produce that. And uh, it's fine to do those practices, but I recommend you do them at a different session than a session to do mindfulness. And keep the mindfulness, um, a kind of uh, the integrity of a, a session of mindfulness. So that's when you're doing that, that's what you're doing, and you're dealing with what comes up when you're doing it. Thank you. 
Next is a question from Adam in Vancouver, Canada. I've had a daily meditation practice for the last six months after following your online six-part introduction, for which I'm very grateful. I started meditating primarily to aid my recovery from multiple addictive behaviors. I can say with complete sincerity that cultivating mindfulness is transforming my life. Although I can feel my practice deepening, I struggle to experience extended periods of continual mindfulness. Do you have any specific instructions on cultivating greater concentration, or is this something that naturally unfolds with the practice? It, it tends to naturally unfold if a person is practicing regularly, and it's possible to uh, let it uh, grow a little bit faster as well, uh, do things that support it more. I think one of the first things... Uh, to be careful for is not to be too idealistic about mindfulness and concentration. Some people uh, uh, expect a very high level of uh, mindfulness or concentration and then they uh, think that if they're only being successful if they're completely mindful every moment of the waking day or if they're always calm and concentrated. And I think that um, uh, that kind of idealistic approach tends to come back and bite people. That people get discouraged, disappointed, angry with themselves. So I think one of the things to do is, is to uh, trust the natural unfolding of practice and that it grows slowly and uh, slowly improves and improves rather than this uh, sudden kind of now I'm completely concentrated or present all the time. But there are things that can be done. Um, the, uh, there's a whole slew of things that can support uh, the growth of mindfulness or concentration in life. Uh, it's possible to meditate more. It could be even short meditations. Uh, Three-minute meditations can be meaningful if you do it uh, you know, four, five, six times through the day. Maybe every time you go to the toilet, um, you use that for a three-minute meditation and uh, sit there and, and uh, focus on your breath and concentrate and clear out from the energy that's been building in the course of the day. Uh, it could also be that you take, um, uh, you make sure that you have some opportunity every week to sit with, sit to meditate together with other people. Some people find it very, very helpful, a big boost to meditate with other people, and it, uh, it, uh, it's a boost that can carry them through a week and uh, support their practice. And, and if, uh, tremendous inspiration can come from that. You know, in, in the online course, I give a lot of. Uh, ideas about how to bring mindfulness in daily life. So certainly that's one way to listen to that again or use some of those things. Um, and then going on retreats. If, um, if uh, a person has a chance to go on retreats, Adam has a chance to go on retreats, um, that's a wonderful way of uh, boosting the mindfulness. And when you come back from a retreat, there's, uh, there tends to be a little bit more Engagement in the practice, it tends to uh, be more present and fuller in people's lives. And that's another way. Thank you. Next question comes from France, from Meg in Jex. Could you explain the Buddha's teaching on rebirth, reincarnation? How does this fit with what we know today? What is a useful understanding of reincarnation in the 21st century, which is one that supports practice? Well, it's a good question, and um, I have been, um, you know, 
involved in Buddhist practice for 35 years plus and uh, been looking a little bit into the explanations for rebirth that Buddhism gives and I don't think Buddhism ever gives a really satisfactory answer about what's going on there with rebirth or certainly the mechanism of it, what's going on and when I've talked to a lot of my fellow Dharma practitioners some of my colleagues who are teachers the ones that uh, believe in rebirth uh, it's seldom that they give a very um, um, rational answer about to, to explain rebirth or explain why they believe in it. Uh, it's usually uh, more like it's something that they um, <clears throat> they feel is right. It just seems right to them. There's an intuitive knowing that they have that, uh, and um, so. How to understand it? I mean, uh, I don't really understand what the Buddhist idea is. I haven't found it for myself to be particularly helpful or interesting in terms of my own practice. Uh, Some people do find it very helpful for their practice because uh, for some people uh, it's very motivating. Uh, The idea that, um, for some people, the idea of coming back over and over again and endless cycles of rebirth um, seems kind of exhausting or, or not so appealing. And so some people are very motivated to be finished with that and uh, get off the wheel, so-called. And other people have the opposite. The idea of rebirth has the opposite effect on them, whereas if there is multiple uh, rebirths, then um, it can actually sometimes actually discourage them from practicing or limit their practice because they feel that, well, you know, I've done enough this lifetime, <laughs> and uh, I just, you know, I'll just coast now and hopefully pick it up next lifetime. <laughs> and... Um, and so some people will focus on, for ex- on uh, merit making in this lifetime because to, to create better conditions so they can meditate seriously next lifetime. Um, so how it, how is it motivating for some people? How is it not for others? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. It's it's a very personal thing, uh, people's relationship to it and how to look upon it that's useful. Um, it's a very interesting question, and um, I think that. Uh, um, if the question is, you know, taken on seriously, uh, the person who's asking the question may can um, try to find how would how would it be useful for her to believe in rebirth? How would it support her practice to do so? And uh, rather than what the Buddhist tradition says, what way could she hold it if she wants to? You know, that's mostly what I feel like saying in terms of the explanation for rebirth or what happens there. The best uh, kind of uh, understanding that I have is that it's kind of like the waves going across the ocean. That um, uh, you can see the waves moving across the ocean, but we know that the water particles don't really move. Uh, Most of the water particles move up and down, and they hit the particles next to them, and so uh, and create them to move up and down. And so it's the movement that moves across the ocean, not anything. There's no particles that move. And so uh, there's no thing that moves from one life to the next, but rather the wave, uh, the way that uh, the consciousness is agitated or goes up and down or a spin on consciousness, uh, somehow or other uh, strikes, creates a spin at the next moment of consciousness. In a way, and, and when a person dies, the belief is that that spin then um, strikes the next moment somehow. So there's no person, there's no thing uh, that uh, moves from life to life but it's more like a spin or a momentum. 
and how we live our life this time and the activity and the actions we live now uh, create that spin. And if you're concerned about your rebirth, then you want to be very concerned about the spin you put. So the behavior you live by, the intentions you live by, the attitudes you develop, because um, the spin that you have at the moment of of death is uh, very consequential about the next moment. Thank you. Next question is from Rebecca in Belmont, California. Uh, I'm relatively new to meditation, and I'm curious about how much meditation practice is enough. Currently, I meditate 40 minutes in one daily session, which I have assumed is kind of the norm. Is there any great benefit to doing more than that? That's a wonderful question, and I'm very happy to hear that Rebecca is sitting 40 minutes a day. It's a wonderful length of time to sit. So the question is, um, you know, how much should... uh, how much meditation practice is enough? The answer to that is very personal. Um, and enough for what? Um, and you have to have some sense of what you're meditating for, what you're trying to do. If you are trying to become, um, um, you know, uh, attain some high level of enlightenment, um, you know, perhaps sitting 40 minutes a day, uh, it's going to take a long time. And perhaps you need to sit more. Uh, if you feel that uh, you want to develop, um, you know, it depends also on your priorities. How important is meditation and the goals of meditation in your life? If it's important enough and you want to orient your life around it, maybe you want to sit more. Maybe uh, when I was uh, in my early 20s, I sat two 40 minutes periods a day when I was in college um, in the morning and the evening. And that was uh, greatly supportive for me and, and very important part of my early life. Um, but I was motivated. It was, you know, that was really important for me. Um, so I think a lot of the answer to that question has to do with Rebecca's intention and what she's trying to do and to be clear about that and then clear how important that is. And the other thing to say about that is <clears throat> she can experiment. Um, she can take, uh, you know, she, she's sitting 40 minutes every day for some time now. She might, uh, for one week, run the experiment of sitting um, either longer, maybe sit uh, 50 minutes or 60 minutes, or perhaps uh, add a second session of meditation in the evening or some other time of day and uh, for a week and see what that's like and see if that improves her life, if, she, if, uh, if the benefits are valuable for her. And then she has first-hand experience about uh, the value of more sitting and then might be motivating to do so. And if the benefits are not that great, then perhaps she can go back to 40 minutes. Thank you. Next question is from Carol in Brooklyn, New York. I often feel that my breath is very subtle and not always easy to feel. What often happens when I sit down and focus on my breath is that I breathe, even though I have often heard that what really should happen is that the breath should breathe me. I am not sure if I'm exerting a subtle control or what. Do you have any advice? Uh, my, my approach to something like this is to be relaxed about it and not be too concerned that... Uh, one of the ways of practicing mindfulness is to just be mindful of how things are 
So if you're being with your breathing, be mindful of how it is that you're breathing. And if it happens that you're breathing with a sense of I breathe, be content with that, be relaxed about that. And then, um, but don't, uh, but don't just let it be that, that way. Look at it more carefully. Get to know it better. Uh, become a connoisseur of what it's like to have, be the agent of breathing, to be the one who breathes. Uh, try to um, tr- uh, let go of any judgment you have of that, or any expectation that should be different, or any goal you have that, or any should that you have. And that uh, mindfulness doesn't unfold too well when the mind is actively involved in shoulds and shouldn'ts, but really to study what is happening. And um, and if you really kind of become the connoisseur, really get to be the world-class expert of what it feels like to have a I-breathe breath, uh, if something needs to change, uh, it'll change on its own. You'll let go, you'll get out of the ways, uh, you'll notice where the holding might be or the tension might be related to that, and, uh, and, uh, and it's eventually it'll relax. Also, if you are just relaxed about how you are with breathing, whether I breathe or the breath breathes itself, um, if you're relaxed about it, then it, uh, what needs to unfold unfolds so much easier than if you're concerned about it should be one way or should be another way. It's uh, almost counterproductive. It's uh, Just let it be as it is. Be mindful of how it is. Don't be bothered by how it is. and um, But just stay present and, and uh, really see it for what it is and allow it to take its course. Thank you. And now for the last question from uh, Tim in Auckland, New Zealand. Tim says, I'm doing concentration concentration meditation, and when the concentration becomes deeper, two things tend to occur. First, my posture. My back bends and I slowly move into a slump. And also my eyelids are no longer closed tight and sometimes open very slightly, letting the light in. When I notice my posture has deteriorated, I attempt to correct it while maintaining concentration. It is challenging but seems to work to some extent. However, I find the appearance of light to be quite distracting, usually taking my attention away from the breath, just for a moment, but enough to break continuity. How should I deal with these issues? Well, again, there are different approaches to concentration and to posture in meditation. <clears throat> uh, when I was in Burma, the men who meditated, that I saw Burmese men, uh, all sat uh, hunched over quite a bit. They sat flat on the floor without a cushion, and they were bent over. and And um, so many of those had, had many of them had very strong, deep practice, strong concentration, and it seemed to work for them in that kind of way. Um, my own kind of uh, training has been in Zen, where, it cons- where sitting upright has been very important. And I put a lot of emphasis or value in the value of sitting straight and upright. I think overall, in the overall development and growth of a person's Buddhist life, Buddhist practice, it's better to sit in an upright aligned posture, uh, even at the expense of developing concentration more slowly. Uh, because I think the concentration that develops then is more holistic or more has more it's more integral in the, the in a in a person's life. Something when people slump, they kind of lose touch with uh, parts of who they are, physically or something. And um, 
And I think even though the concentration might develop slower, it's better to do it in an aligned, upright posture, a posture that somehow um, uh, somehow uh, mimics the kind of posture the Buddha has in Buddha statues. And uh, and one of the interesting ways of doing that, though, is when you have slumped, is to very carefully and uh, bring your attention and to the slump itself. Notice where you feel collapsed. Notice what feels stretched. Notice if there's anything that feels like it's pulling down or pushing, or anything that feels kind of um, like, uh, like it's given out or given away. Uh, really relaxed. And really kind of do a mindful exploration of the physical aspects of the slumping. And occasionally, if you do that, then um, something releases and the body will straighten itself out. And uh, rather than you straightening it out, it will straighten out by itself. And if it doesn't, then uh, I think it's good to sit up straight and uh, let the practice continue developing then. The, um, um, and in terms of the light, uh, yes, I know some people find that their eyes open when they get concentrated, open slightly. And in fact, if you look at the Buddha statues, the Buddha is often sitting with his eyes kind of half open or quarter open. Um, other people find that as they get concentrated, uh, their eyes tend to close. Uh, some people sit with their eyes open to begin with, and then as they get concentrated, the eyes close. works differently for different people. I sat for years with my eyes open. Uh, that's what you do in Zen. And uh, I found it very uh, a fine thing to do. Um, and, um, you know, it takes a while to get used to if you're not used to it. But uh, you, after a while, you get used to it and not distracted by the sights around you. Um, and uh, so chances are that if uh, you just kind of relax around the light that you see when your eyes open, um, just let it be that after a few weeks or something that uh, it'll become ordinary enough and not be distracting anymore. Um, uh, or you can uh, uh, intentionally keep the eyes closed if you can do that. And, uh, and uh, sometimes it's useful to maintain the, uh, the eyes closed when you're getting concentrated because um, even though it might take a little bit of effort, it might actually keep you, help you develop stronger concentration in the, in, as you're going along. It seems like a good problem to have, Tim. I'm glad that uh, you know, you're getting concentrated enough to have these kinds of issues. Uh, you know, please take them as an encouragement and, um, and just continue. And th Things tend to unfold and change relatively quickly if you practice regularly. And I'm sure, maybe even by now, this is not no longer the same issue as it was when you wrote your question. So, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Gail. This is the end of our session. Great. It's, uh, I love having these questions. And I appreciate having this contact with people uh, all over the world and, and that people are engaged so beautifully in the practice and that they have questions. It's a beautiful thing to have questions about practice. And I encourage people to have questions. And... Uh, uh, having questions is one of the ways we develop wisdom and one of the ways one of the great ways we support our practice um, it kind of opens the doors to you know to understanding so thank you everyone <laughs>